0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards.
1: Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. We are excited about taking on your questions regarding God's Word over the next hour. So uh, get in online. Uh, Let us know what's on your heart. Any question about the Bible itself? Maybe a passage or two you'd like to dig more deeply into than you ever have before. Maybe uh, there's some challenges going on in your life. You wonder exactly what biblical principles you can apply so you can be smack dab in the middle of God's good, acceptable, and perfect will for your life. We'd love to be able to share all of that with you. As uh, this edition of the broadcast unfolds, uh, if you've got tough questions about the Christian faith, maybe you've been asked a tough question by a skeptic, maybe you've always had a tough question or two, but uh, kind of felt embarrassed about uh, asking about it in a uh, churchy, Christian-like setting, hey, we'd like to be able to provide for you a no-harm, no-foul, non-judgmental place to get all of your questions answered. All we ask is that your questions be sincere. Uh, If you're looking for an answer straight from the Bible, we'll be happy to provide it. The events of the day, even the events of tomorrow through Biblical Prophecy, we are all over it on the broadcast each and every day. But where we go from here, entirely up to you. It's your questions that determine the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. Joined by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Hey, Sean, uh, how can people connect uh, with us to get their questions into uh, the rotation?
0: If you want to join us online, we can receive your emails at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you want to verify spelling, you can join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, it'll be in that purple bar where the ministry and the events place will also be listed. You'll be sent to ccftucson.online.church, and there we'll have both countdown clocks leading to the next broadcast as well. As from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, a live stream of the broadcast unfolding before your very eyes. (laughs) On the right-hand side of the screen, you can leave your questions in comment form, and as well take note of the email address and the banner at the top, or bottom rather, of the screen and as well on social media. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and YouTube is a reason for hope. However, if we, for whatever reason, I won't uh, point fingers except at them, of that which we are taken down, we will still be broadcasting on our platform. So feel free to join us there. They can't ban us where we own the IP, at least not yet. If you want to send us your questions, note the kind of questions we'll be taking are sincere Bible questions. If they are sincere, that means that you want to hear Hear the answer. If they are about the Bible, that means that the answer in of itself is concerning the Bible, not just the question mentions it in some passing way. And as well, if you want to ask it, make sure it is in the form of a question, as we say you get Jeopardy points here. That's right. We uh, can translate, but we'd prefer to be able to focus our brain cells and where the Holy Spirit's directing us. So note that as your participation in the broadcast unfolds. We'll be looking forward to engaging with you. Note that questions about the the future in regards to prophecy, the past in regards to history, or its relevance to your life today, all are welcome on the broadcast. Just make sure the substance is of the Bible, and we'll be happy to address it. With all that being said, and mentioning the Holy Spirit, why don't we take a moment to invite him to be a part of the broadcast, and then get into our prophecy updates, since uh, you're going to be gone for the next week.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, A lot could happen between now and then. Father, I thank you that you uh, have uh, a specific purpose, a design and a desire for even this gathering that we have together to share your word. Lord, uh, your word is forever settled in heaven. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Uh, Job uh, spoke of it as being more precious to him than his necessary food. I pray that he would allow us to be able to have a deeper and more full and uh, a more exciting perspective about the blessing that we have of your divinely inspired word. We thank you for this opportunity to explore it together, guide the questions, and guide the answers, Lord, and uh, change us and transform us as we allow your truth to dwell in us richly. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, just uh, making a point of note, at the time of this recording, it
0: is July 15th of 2022. From the 18th to the 22nd, you will be taking your summer vacation time, but will be joining us... uh, Post haste on the twenty fifth. I'll still be here, but I know that's not a selling point. So if you want to rejoin us, that will be the day. (laughs) Well, I don't know about that. With all that being said, though, what is going on in the realm of prophecy, and especially in regards to Israel?
1: Well, uh, especially in regards to Israel, as you know, uh, the eight hundred. Pound Gorilla in the Room. Uh, One that's very hard to ignore is uh, President Joe Biden's uh, recently concluded visit to uh, Israel. If uh, you've been following along either with this broadcast or our Twitter feed uh, at uh, scottr4h at uh, twitter.com, you know that uh, we forecasted that uh, essentially this visit is uh, going to only change things in the Middle East incrementally. In fact, uh, probably the best analysis Uh, Looking at what has happened in Israel and with the Palestinians, per se, uh, after Joe Biden has arrived there, is uh, pretty much uh, Israel was going to be disheartened uh, by the various gestures and uh, symbols, symbolic actions that uh, took place during this journey. We've seen that. Uh, Joe Biden visited East Jerusalem, but uh, made sure that the uh, armored vehicle that he was in, although it was Israeli, had the Israeli flag taken down before he entered into that territory. Uh, he uh, also, uh, before taking off for Saudi Arabia, met with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the uh, prime minister of the uh, Palestinian Authority, fellow who has overstayed his uh, term in office by, I think, 12 years at last count, but uh, again ended up uh, offending the Palestinians by, first of all, saying something that the Israelis would find very disconcerting, that he was in favor of a two-state solution, uh, a Palestinian state that uh, would uh, be contiguous, that would have, say, for instance, the ability to have its own ports and, and so forth, uh, and uh, that uh, this would be drawn up based on pre-1967 war lines. Now, the reason that uh, Israel found that statement uh, disconcerting is if you go back and you take a look at what the pre-1967 boundaries of Israel were, uh, put it this way, at one place, uh, Israel, uh, from uh, one side of it to another, would be roughly around eight miles or so, Uh, The pre-1967 boundaries would also give up territory uh, like the Golan Heights, uh, which would uh, pretty much allow anyone setting up military operations to hit anywhere in Israel from uh, that particular venture. The pre-1967 boundaries would also give up East Jerusalem uh, as far as Israel's capital. So you can understand why the Israelis weren't all that wild about Joe Biden saying that. But he followed up with another statement that uh, really ended up uh, being rather disconcerting for the Palestinians. He said that the time uh, for Israel and for the Palestinians to sit down and negotiate may be coming, but the ground is not ripe yet. Uh, And so the Palestinians pretty much got offended at that. Uh, They were hoping that uh, Biden would strong arm the Israelis into uh, making uh, land for peace concessions, a la the 1967 uh, boundaries. Whether that is the case or not, uh, we're going to see. But there was a really fascinating analysis uh, at a a website called lidblog.com. It's short for Uh, yid with a lid, uh, the fellow who runs uh, the particular blog, provides some really interesting uh, uh, insight into what's going on and uh, how we can process this going forward. Uh, Essentially, uh, what Joe Biden's trip to Israel did was uh, confirm what uh, I think observers of the Middle East on the ground understood, that uh, the Abraham Accords, uh, particularly as they uh, pertain to Israel, are still in place. Uh, None of them have been rescinded. Nobody is bailing out on the Abraham Accords. But we have to understand the Abraham Accords in uh, a larger context. Uh, It uh, has been, uh, gosh, about 22 months since the Abraham Accords were announced. But you may recall that prior to the Abraham Accords being announced, uh, President Trump at that point announced what he called The deal of the century that would bring the Palestinians and the Israelis together and uh, force them to negotiate for peace. Well, you know, part and parcel of that was uh, to cause there to be such economic incentives to the rest of the nations in the Middle East that uh, for them to continue to support uh, the Palestinians' intransigence as far as sitting down and negotiating any kind of long-term settlement uh, with Israel, including leaving off the table these negotiations, Israel as the undivided capital, or I should say Jerusalem as the undivided capital of Israel. Palestinians say that's a non-starter, they aren't going to go ahead and do that. But uh, the deal of the century essentially put the Palestinians in a corner. Uh, because it basically said, hey, uh, we're willing even to sit down and talk about giving you guys a piece of East Jerusalem if, uh, for instance, you would be willing to uh, concede that Israel has a right to exist uh, side by side as a nation. Well, if you know anything about Palestinian politics, for any uh, Palestinian prime minister to say such a thing uh, would be essentially what? Signing their death warrant? Uh, somebody would take him out pretty rapidly. You might recall if we didn't have the promises of God. Yeah, yeah. You might recall the last time a uh, an Arab leader uh, made uh, agreements about trading land for peace with Israel. That was Anwar Sadat. The uh, famous uh, uh, accords that were uh, that happened back in the Carter administration. Uh, again, he recognized Israel as a nation, and Israel for their part, gave uh, the Egyptians back the Sinai Desert that had been captured uh, in the Yom Kippur War. And uh, again, it seemed like a win-win until, of course, Anwar Sadat was assassinated for doing that very thing. So anytime a uh, Arab leader has uh, made that kind of peace gesture with Israel, definitely uh, would cause their insurance premiums to rise strat- stratospherically uh, at that point. So uh, what Trump did, essentially, was put the Palestinians in the corner and say, we're going to give you all this economic help, uh, we're going to raise your standard of living, we're going to give you a, uh, a, your own uh, particular place to call your own, uh, in harmony with negotiations with the Israelis. They have to sign off on that, and you don't get East Jerusalem as your capital. Well, the Palestinians walked away. and and the reason this was so brilliant was because it essentially uh, showed the other the other uh, Arab states, uh, states like Egypt, states like Jordan, states like the Gulf states, states like Saudi Arabia, that uh, the Palestinians uh, were going to be absolutely unreasonable. And intransigent and that uh, pouring more and more money to supporting a group like the Palestinians was throwing good money after bad and, and so uh, the interesting thing about all of that was the uh, Palestinians found themselves in a place uh, where they didn't have leverage uh, any longer Trump rightfully understood that moderate Arab states were tired of the Palestinians refusal even to try to make peace uh, and, and so they were try, They were also tired of carrying the Palestinians. In fact, uh, a lot of the moderate states were already dealing with the Israelis behind the scenes. Well, you know, again, this idea of, well, if you don't go to bat, you're not going to get your state. Uh, Biden seems to be uh, pushing the two-state solution forward as a first step. In other words... Uh, The Palestinians first had to agree to recognize Israel. They had to er er agree to some concessions. And then we would talk about a two-state solution. Uh, Biden's uh, particular approach seems to turn that on its head and takes away uh, the pressure on the Palestinian Authority to be able to negotiate in good faith. The other uh, interesting aspects of this uh, were that uh, Biden has also said and made statements in Israel that... Uh, Any kind of uh, military action against Iran would only be taken as a last step. If every other uh, alternative was exhausted, then and only then would the United States uh, consider, uh, say, military action uh, against Iran's uh, budding nuclear program. Well, the minute he says that, uh, the Iranians were excited about that because that gives them more time to be able to develop their nuclear program. If you've been following uh, along on this broadcast during the week, you know that uh, the Iranians have admitted openly that they have 60 percent enriched uranium, which is more than enough to create at least one uh, nuclear bomb. Uh, The Iranians also have the ballistic missiles to be able to, to deliver such a bomb right now but they can continue within days now to enrich that 60% uranium and the 20% enriched uranium they have uh to 90% which would allow them to build a number of different uh, nuclear weapons and uh and cross the uh, line from a threshold nuclear state to being part of the nuclear club well when we take a look at that Israel is certainly not going to let Iran make that statement happen but uh when Biden made the statement that the United States would only support military action as a final step, that was uh, of great comfort to the Iranians. It means that their particular venture is working. Uh, Biden talked about going back to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Obama administration uh, Iran nuclear deal that uh, literally has fallen apart. A lot of the even the provisions of that deal have uh, already passed their deadline as far as any restrictions on the Iranians developing a bomb. Uh, But uh, that also rattles some cages in uh, other areas of the Middle East, particularly Saudi Arabia. Why? Because the Iranians are what kind of Muslim? Not Sunni. (laughs) And uh, the Saudis are are Sunni Muslims, and they hate each other. They hate each other more than they hate uh, Jews or Christians. Uh, because they consider each other infidels. So fascinatingly, uh, when President Biden landed in Saudi Arabia and sat down with the Saudi Arabian leadership, one of the first questions that was asked from the press is, President Biden, do you still consider Saudi Arabia a pariah state? He made that comment back in 2019, at which point uh, the Saudi royal family representatives there all began to laugh. Well, not a real auspicious start, uh, to someone going hat in hand to the Saudis asking him to increase oil production, hopefully with the idea of lowering the cost of oil here in the United States. So bottom line, what can we expect out of Biden's uh, trip to Israel? Pretty much what we told you going in. A whole lot of nothing. everybody ends up disappointed. everyone ends up being let down. We've essentially come back to the same space we were before Biden made the trip. Uh, you know I think uh, if anything, uh, the uh, the Iranian uh, government, the mad mullahs in Tehran, have a more clear understanding of the fact that the United States is not willing to go toe-to-toe with them at this particular point. Uh, they do still have to worry about Israel, though. And uh, right before airtime, uh, we've also seen that uh, there have been a few rockets launched from Gaza into Israel, I guess is the Palestinian uh, way of saying uh, we didn't appreciate this whole enterprise that went on. So essentially, nothing has changed in the, the Middle East as far as uh, the, the situation on the ground uh, quite a bit. Uh, could be in the offing as uh, in the next uh, few weeks we will have to see how Israel deals with Iran and uh, their mad dash to becoming a nuclear power. All right.
0: Uh, let us know if you want any further detail on that, but that will pretty much cover the issue. And if nothing will come of it, then I guess nothing more be said. Yeah. <laughs> Going out to our questions, we have one from Isaiah who is, uh, well, I guess uh, better go out with a bang than a whimper as far as Facebook is concerned. A friend who supports abortion and they have a series of arguments. We can uh, reiterate some of the points that Peter and I made on Tuesday, and maybe uh, readdress them with a, another uh, head in the mix. The first one, obviously, is with Genesis chapter 2 in mind, that God breathed into Adam's lungs and he became a living soul, therefore life does not begin at conception, it begins at first breath, because of the—I'm kind of answering the question here—unique circumstances regarding Adam's creation. And, and, and
1: just to, to get to the, 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 the heart of the matter there, Uh, To say that uh, Adam's uh, creation in the garden was normative in any sense uh, would imply that every human being that would come after him would be formed out of the dust of the earth, and then uh, God would breathe into their nostrils the breath of life. Uh, To say that uh, you don't have a living being prior to that time is absolutely absurd, uh, not only scripturally, Uh, because certainly in passages like Psalm 139, uh, where King David said, uh, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in the days that were ordained for me when there was not yet one of them. Uh, you know he talked about being fearfully and wonderfully made in his mother's womb. Uh, we do see preborn life uh, being demonstrated uh, not only uh, in uh, the life of Jesus as uh, Mary was bearing him, but also in uh, pre-born John the Baptist actually having a spiritual experience when uh, Mary and Jesus, came into the same place. So, you know, to be able to sit, to say something like, uh, well, uh, doesn't the Bible teach that uh, life begins at first breath? Well, first of all, you'd have to say that uh, that child in the womb is an inanimate object. Uh, any parent uh, knows the uh, joy of uh, feeling that first kick uh, that comes from that baby. Uh, moms uh, will be excited about that first kick, but then they end up getting kicked pretty much bruised from the inside out as part of the process of bringing children into the world. Uh, You know, it's very interesting. uh, When you take a look at a sonogram, nobody looks at the sonogram and says, oh, well, there's an inanimate object right there. Uh, Until it takes its first breath, it's just not a human being. It is a being, as we've said. It's a being that is human. It has the same genetic endowment that we do. It has uh, animation in it. It has the ability to act independently of the mother that is bearing it. Uh, There is no uh, way, shape, or form that uh, you can make a biblical case for the idea that life begins with the first breath uh, because then God would have to use that as a pattern for every human being that came after Adam, and we certainly see that's not the case. All right.
0: Another example was made in reference, believe it or not, to uh, Mike The chicken. Uh, If, and this is to belabor the point regarding a distinction that we'll make here in a moment, if a chicken's head gets cut off, does that mean that the soul or spirit of the chicken is still inside it in order to then verify how can John the Baptist leap in his mother's womb if he doesn't have a soul yet? She then, uh, the individual making the pro-abortion argument, went to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, which I mentioned to the questioners, kind of funny in a dark way if this is their logic but the approach is this because there is a distinction made between body and soul in the last third of a verse out of context i'll read the whole thing because i'm mean like that Uh, and do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul i wonder who that's in reference to but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell So, a distinction's made between body and soul. Therefore, just because the the child is growing, it has a body, but it doesn't have a soul until first breath. We've already dealt with that as a non-starter, but let's continue on with the point. It would explain away the proof text we would reference in Luke chapter 1, where John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb. Maybe it was just an involuntary action. It was just a body doing that. It doesn't mean that John the Baptist had a soul. That's
1: not what the Scripture says. Nor is it. The reaction. Uh, of Elizabeth the said, "Did not the child within me leap for joy when she heard the sound of your voice?" And also noting the mother of
0: my Lord, what was the state of her Lord, who has, by the way, not only a spiritual status but figurehead in the world physically? What trimester was he within first. Mary? Oh, okay, yeah. uh, no breath yet. No. <laughs> not, not not even a fully formed embryonic sac, according to most studies. But here's the point. If they're going to make a reference to Mike the Chicken, um, just quick biology and maybe pop culture trivia, if you care. Uh, That very rare instance of the chicken getting its head cut off wasn't down here. It was up here. For those of you listening on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, the cutting off was essentially from the jawbone up and not below the eyes. So essentially what that chicken experienced was a majority lobotomy, but it kept its brain stem and its motor function still intact, and the uh, guy who cut its head off did not nick his jugular vein. So in response to that, and you can bring this up, Isaiah, the recognition of life is identified in the book of Genesis as having blood, which the chicken did indeed have, and which, of course, also preformed children also have. Note, to a very limited extent and still developing, but the point being made isn't that we're arguing that if something is a heartbeat, though that's the basis of most laws, that necessarily constitutes it as life. But if you're going to argue that and make the red herring fallacy comparison to a chicken, A, human beings aren't the same anatomically as chickens. There's a lot of uh, very bizarre sea creatures that have interesting uh, I guess exceptions to the sort of things that we as human beings wouldn't survive or tolerate for very long. Living underwater being one of them. But if on the other hand you're going to (laughs) take a step back and ask what's the real issue here well you're not going to the text you're explaining away a point being made by the text and that's dodgy and also noting that uh, point i made off to the side about it kind of being dark that they would reference that point i read the whole verse but let me just make the uh, whole statement Jesus was making in context read fairly clearly, and I'll let you all decide uh, in advance what actually is being addressed here. Verse 27 of Matthew chapter 10, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. So in the verse leading up to this so far, what is Jesus saying? Don't keep my words to yourself. Take them seriously enough to circulate them. Right. Then in verse 28 it says, and, this is in Light of you sharing this material because it may end up costing you your life, do not fear those who can kill the body and cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Then goes on to note a value system. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Not very much at all. And Uh, Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. So even the most inconsequential as far as value systems are concerned, the most worthless, economically, forms of life aren't above your father's attention. Then he goes on to say, But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And then goes on to say, Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father in heaven, but note in light of the warning Jesus just gave, destroying body and soul in hell, who denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So note this contrast that Jesus made, sandwiched between this interesting observation. He starts with the commission, and the context of this, by the way, is the sending out of the twelve apostles to Israel. He reminds them in verses 16 through 26 that persecutions are coming, that you will be delivered up to death, and then he provides comfort. He reminds them that there will be people who are trying to kill you, but you shouldn't them, because not only is, and this is how he follows through on it, not only the reminder that God can inflict much greater punishment if you forsake him than if you uh, forsake man, but also noting a benevolence as well, a good aspect to this. God doesn't just want to punish you if you abandon him, he wants to take care of you. Right. That even right. if your life is taken, that he will have you covered. That he will judge the people who are trying to take your life defenseless person who's just trying to exist and do what God has told him to do at that moment, maybe develop, just throwing a hint out there, but then continuing on and making the point that your relationship with me is what matters most. So with all of these things in mind, do we have any truth statements being made within this passage that would note a reasonable conclusion that there's a distinction between your status before God and your body on this earth? Not necessarily. If you were to nitpick a third of a verse and out of its context, a conversation about persecution and evangelism, and say, this justifies me killing the bodies, wait, of babies, (laughs) because, or fetuses if you would prefer, because it does not have a soul. Well, notice who has the authority to destroy both body and soul in hell the father, and this is what Peter and I talked about on Tuesday. The basis of most pro-abortion arguments are taking the rights, the exclusive rights, by the way, that God has over life and death and attributing it to us rather than leaving it in the hands of God. When things go wrong in a fallen sinful world and things like miscarriages happen, every woman with a soul is going to grieve that 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 horrible set of circumstances. But it doesn't mean that they're being punished. It doesn't mean that they're being judged. It means that something went wrong. However, if I deliberately take it on myself to commit specific actions that either disintegrate, mutilate, or utterly annihilate a life in my body, right. then, and if even if we're going to make the distinction between body and soul, A, I don't know. I don't Determine. I don't decide when that soul is inserted in the body. I am only sorry, ladies, but this is true. If we're talking about fundamentals, an apparatus by which that body is developing, not by which it was created. You have things in your body God provided that were necessary components for that life's conception, but you don't willfully create that body. It's a natural cause of, by the way, a very specific act. If you uh, haven't had this talk with your parents yet, maybe you can ask them. But the The point being made is this, what this girl is doing, Isaiah, is taking a right, or taking three rights actually, on themselves. The right to determine when a soul is given to a body rather than his word. The right over his word to misrepresent what he said and clarify this is the whole point that Jesus was making despite the whole chapter saying nothing of the sort. And of course, making that distinction, I'm the one who kills the body as if God isn't going to judge that kind of person. Yeah. So, oh, as long as I'm not killing the soul, that's God's job. No, it's no one's job except God's. He's the one who gave life. He is the one who's the right to take it. We talked about this in referencing many passages in Deuteronomy. If you want to listen to the broadcast on its recording date, that was on July 12th, 2022. We dealt with some pro-abortion arguments on that day. You can right. listen to that on your own time, Isaiah. But the point being made is this, not only is that Genesis 2 assumption kaput, not only is the chicken comparison a red herring, if not a non sequitur at best, if you wanna know what those mean, ask, but it's also incredibly Scary to see someone who claims to be, and this is where I'll pass it back to you a born again Christian. They emphasize this to our questioner. They claim to be a born again Christian and would handle the Scriptures not only so loosely, but so callously in order to justify the destruction of human bodies, because they've taken it on themselves to determine what does and doesn't have a soul, inconsistently with what the text plainly states. So when we're talking about these issues and talking to people who don't believe in Jesus, here's how you respond. Well, this is my perspective, this is my authority, I not only go to the scriptures in order to inform my truth statements, and these are things that are clearly made, but you don't have to believe the Bible in order to come to this conclusion. I can also show you scientific studies and observations, I'll be happy to show you fetal development charts, and you can determine for yourself when do you think life begins in this progression, and on it can go. However. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul made a distinction between those who are on the outside that God will ultimately deal with, between the revelation that they've been given between him and them, and those who are on the inside, which we are called, and I quote, to judge. Right. So, in the promotion, and I won't apologize for this, of false doctrine, in the promotion of murder... And in the justification of its popularization and normalization, how should we deal with someone who is claiming to believe that Jesus was who he said he was, to believe in the authority of Scripture, to believe in Jesus' authority to judge them in the words that they say, and hold this position which is directly
1: contrary to his word? Well, you know, I think you always give the benefit of the doubt. I I would hearken back to Matthew chapter 18, and uh, verses 15 and following about if you see your, if your brother sins against you, go to your brother and uh, confirm about it privately. If he hears you, you've won your brother. Uh, you know the the most important thing that we can do is to have uh, private one-on-one, meaningful interactions based upon a shared understanding that what we're not trying to do here is to justify my side or your side, but to discover what God's Word really has to say about all this. If a person turns around and says, well, I really don't care what God's Word has to say about this, this is my position, and I'm sticking to it, well, you know, again, we have uh, an obligation to warn those who are unruly? The Scripture says that is those that uh, just uh, throw aside God's standards and say, "I'm going to do what I want to do," uh, even with all the God talk going on. Uh, you know, as far as somebody just digging in their heels and saying, "Yeah, I think abortion um, is is okay," and I think in the dialogue, uh, the person said, "I think uh, some abortions are okay." Well good idea to sit down with that person and say, okay, which abortions do you think are okay? Uh, And if they say, well, you know, uh, if there's extraordinary circumstances or it's really going to be an inconvenience or all of this, just say, okay, um, you know, how, where would you draw the line in terms of taking out this nascent life uh, in order to be able to facilitate the things that you, you are talking about here? You know, if, they want, if you want to get scriptural about it, the onus is really on the person who claims to be born again and claims to be pro-abortion. Because when they say, well, you know, uh, we, we, uh, really, uh, you know we really don't know when life begins. Well, first of all, that's a non-starter. Scripturally, Psalm 139, uh, King David defines it as starting with his unformed substance from the time the sperm and egg cell unite. Uh, science would back that up. And if they say, well, we just don't know when the insolment the takes place, uh, well, okay, but you're the one that is uh, saying that uh, somewhere along this process of human life, from conception all the way through death, that it's okay to kill human beings just because they're at a certain state of development, you need to tell me exactly where in the Bible it says uh, that ensoulment takes place. And again, we've thrown out the idea of the first breath as having any kind of validity in the conversation. And Luke chapter 1 being a good start. Yeah, so, uh, you know, if the person basically comes down to this, well, I really don't care what your Bible says, I'm going to stick to my guns, well... Um, Shake the dust you know, off your feet, and I guess just you know, let God Jesus do it. kind of put it this way. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Yeah. Uh, there's going to be all kinds of people at judgment that are going to say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, uh, you know, we taught you in the streets. In your name we cast out demons, did many miracles. And he will say to them, uh, be gone from me. You have practiced lawlessness. I never knew you. So, you know, if a person is uh, decidedly in favor, of uh, murdering defenseless life, Uh, I would say that that person uh, has to take a big step back and say, okay, uh, is is the Bible something I'm going to use just to verify and validate my takes and my opinions on a subject, or am I going to let my takes and opinions on a subject flow out of an in-context understanding of the Bible? And and that's, that's a huge issue. Um, you know, there's some pretty heavy duty passages about people that play fast and loose with human life. I think of 1 John chapter 3, and verse 10, where it says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whoever doesn't do righteousness is not of God, neither he that doesn't love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and slew his brother. And why did he slay him? Because his works were evil, and his brothers were, righteousness, were righteous. Uh, you know, and it goes on, and it says, uh, you know, we know that no one who is a murderer has eternal life within them. So if you're advocating the killing of helpless life, I would take a big step back and ask the question, does the author of life really live in your heart or have any impact on your life? I'm not that is not to say that there aren't individuals that are poorly taught christians uh who just don't understand the message of the bible quite enough uh and might still hold on to that position but i think anyone who understands what the essential message of the bible is and uh, still holds that position really needs to take a step back and ask do i know the author himself
0: and it's also it's Breaking my heart to have to describe this because there's people in my life who are in this state as well. It becomes a point where you can only pray for somebody and treat them as if they were a non believer because, in this case, it probably is. While they may affirm or claim the name of Jesus, we're told in Romans chapter 1 and verse 32 that one of the signs of someone who's literally being judged by God because of a willful rejection and retaining of Him in their mind and heart is not only doing the sort of things that reflect a soul handed over to their sin, but also approving of those who do them. When we, and again, like you said, make the distinction between someone who's ill-informed, information is the solution. But when we encounter someone who is not only ill-informed, but so callous in their position that they would wave away, dismiss, or throw around words like, well, that's a straw man, or you're just, when it's not actually the case, just coming up with multiple syllable words to dodge the issue, and that's the problem, then we have to say this isn't an, a mind issue, this is a heart issue. Right. And if the heart is what's an ultimate rebellion against God, that's the real realm where things become beyond our pay grade. The kind of people who aren't savable, aren't those who weren't given enough information by God or just happened to grow up on the wrong side of the tracks. It's the person who's been given God's word over and over again, who claims to be an expert in God's law, Pharisees and Sadducees, and the sort of people who claim to be born again. And at the same time, want nothing to do with the Jesus of history, who will make up an idol, call it Jesus, and say, as you said, this is just the confirmation of all my prejudices. Or like the people I talk to, where they say, oh yeah, I love Jesus. He's one of my many spirit guides during my lucid dreaming. I don't think that's the sort of Jesus that can save you. We're going to see more and more of this. We're going to see this world become more and more wicked, and it's easy to get jaded and cynical. But the most tactful way to go about this isaiah and i again say this with a heavy heart because i've had to do it myself is you either have to let that person deal with the god i hope is in their heart and he will soften things in time because i know we're into the instant uh, you know dvr recordings we don't have to press play and record at the same time we have everything done for us automatically yeah. these things do in fact take a time and a process and if they're willing to play fast and loose with the bible like this and i don't say that lightly that is a deep seated issue right but if on the other <clears throat> hand you encounter them just doubling down at this to the degree where there's nothing that can be done well then don't waste your time sever the relationship pray that god will lead them into all truth but noting if the spirit isn't in there then obviously they're going to still confirm and be where they started you won't change that because the Spirit's not there. But if on the other hand, the Spirit is there, you can't change that either. He can, though, and in either case, you can leave the situation up to him and spare yourself the heartache and headache of pointless conversations. Yeah,
1: John 16, uh, Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. Doesn't say that the minute the Spirit of truth indwells us, we understand all truth and affirm all truth. It is a process that's going on, and so uh, we want to, in, in a sense, Um, allow uh, for the possibility of growth, but uh, but boy, you you really have to discern where that person's coming from. The other thing that I would just mention, just as the final tag on in all of this, if someone is fighting tooth and nail over this particular issue and trying to Christianize it, uh, it's entirely possible that you're dealing, as you mentioned, Sean, not with an intellectual issue, but with a heart issue. Uh, in other words, there's something in this person's background. Either someone they know, or maybe even they personally have gone through that procedure, and they feel incredible shame and guilt about it all. And so uh, that that pressure of shame and guilt will cause them to even try to, uh, in a sense, rewrite the Bible to be able to uh, validate their particular point of view. Obviously, there's some people that fall into this just because this is their tribe. This is the people they hang out with. Uh, they don't want to be one of those born agains or those pro-lifers or things like this. But in uh, more cases uh, than you'd imagine, a lot of times a person's perspective on this issue comes out of their own experience. Never neglect that. Uh, you might even ask a, uh, a personal question like, uh, you know, it seems to me that, you know, you've, you're really trying to read an awful lot of things in the Bible on this issue. Why is the issue of, uh, of abortion so important to you? Emotionally, see what what, they say.
0: And if what comes after that is a bunch of internet slogans and CNN memes, don't don't give that any more time. But if, on the other hand, you talk to them in a way where you give them time, this is the good news. At least, I told you I've had friends that I've had to sever relationships with over deeper and darker issues. Granted, but still issues that were so hardened in their heart that they just wouldn't back down. There's also people I've had conversations with on this exact issue. Where I was able to say after a point, look, I trust the work God's doing in your heart that he'll clarify this for you. I can answer questions, but you've heard all my answers. Just pray about this. Let him clarify things for you, and I trust you'll get up on the right path. It didn't take a weekend before I talked to her again, and she went, yeah, I can see where you're coming from now. God does great stuff. We don't. We mess ourselves up, but he can fix things, and that's why we follow him. Yeah,
1: Um, uh, just an interesting comment that uh, Isaiah uh, makes here is uh, that I guess uh, she feels that the Roe versus Wade uh, being law being rescinded will affect contraception and birth control. That was specifically delineated in the Dobbs opinion that it would not affect either of those things. So.
0: Ignorance, it's not an intellectual issue. A question from Nina who wants to know, and she gives a specific example, but what do you do when you want a healing, you pray for healing, but God says no, and they end up either dying young or just, um, I guess, uh, quote-unquote, unanswered prayer, as if no isn't an answer. Obviously, we want people to always be healed and remain on this earth, because that's where we are, and we as creatures were built for eternal relationships. So there's that natural heartache that even Jesus expressed in John chapter 10, yeah. when his friend Lazarus had physically died, despite the fact he was going to resurrect them within a half hour. Yeah. So note the point. It's not wrong to grieve, it's not wrong to be repulsed by death. But if we, I guess, attribute to God, you didn't answer my prayer, or you didn't come through for me, or you didn't heal. And this is really what I think is the heart of the mistake. When God says no, it's not fair that God can take a life so young you want everyone to live long. It's not fair that the Lord giveth and taketh away. Let me read Acts 17. This has actually come up a lot in my life recently. I should Probably pay attention to that. But uh, in Acts 17, Paul's speaking in Athens to a group of scholars, uh, a lot of different worldviews, a lot of different perspectives, but he's drawing their attention to an unknown God, a God they're at least familiar with that exists but don't know anything about, and he's willing to fill in that gap. He clarifies with a brief summary of Genesis and goes on to note that uh, he's in charge of all these things. He doesn't need a temple, he doesn't need us. Even Solomon, when he built him a temple, said, The heavens of heavens can't contain you, let alone this house that I have built, as great as it was. You can read that in 1 Kings. But he goes on to say in verse 26 of Acts 17, He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times... And the boundaries of their dwellings. Now, the conversation I've been having, nationality, was the conversation and racism. But in this conversation, what else does Paul mention? Their times. Not just when they're born, but how long they are on this earth. These are known by God. This right. is part of the the ver- proof text you would go to, where God knows the days of our uh, lives as if there were not yet one of them briefly alluding to another one in the Old Testament, but I digress. It says in verse 27 that they should live long. Oh, wait, no, it doesn't say that. It say that they should all live the same amount of time. It doesn't, it doesn't say that either. It doesn't say that they should never get sick. It doesn't say that they should never have an unfortunate medical diagnosis. It doesn't say that they should always get positive diagnoses and live to be 100 just like everyone else. No, it says in verse 27, here's the purpose for our times and our dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being and he's quoting their own prophet or their own poets on this so notice nina the purpose of life isn't to get the most numbers in on your birth certificate it's not to make sure that you spend the longest amount of time here if god were fair is efficiently as we could define that term, meaning the same, uh, egal- not egalitarian, the uh, equity outcomes that everyone seems to be advertising as the perfect life these days. We'd all be in hell right now. God doesn't deal with us according to fairness or equal outcomes, because the only just outcome for us is hell. Right. right? But if on the other hand, God wants to be merciful... There are instances where he can take some people sooner than others. It's a great heartache for the parents, but it's also a great mercy for the individual. Why? Because they are with the Lord. They have fulfilled their purpose in this life according to Scripture.
1: And I think that's really an important point to make. You know, one of the toughest things, I'll say, Nina, that you ever encounter in ministries, coming alongside parents that say have lost a child, uh, you know, sudden infant death syndrome, or or things along this line, or you know, one of the most heartbreaking parts of ministry to me is when I make a hospital call uh, to the uh, pediatric ICU uh, at Banner Hospital here in Tucson, and you see so many of these children that are struggling with uh, with just incredible uh, physical challenges that are there. It breaks your heart. But uh, one of the things that I try to keep in mind when I do that is this. First of all, God is not without compassion. He understands, and his heart breaks over those children as well. What those children are going through is really uh, an offshoot, a part of the fallout of the fall of man. And that's why God warned Adam and Eve before they turned their back on him that dying, they would die on the day that they rebelled. Well, not only did we start to die spiritually, but we all we died spiritually, but we also start to die physically. And we all see the offshoot of all of that. Uh, You know, one of the the, uh, important things to understand is this. Just as you mentioned, Sean, we tend to see life only in terms of this horizontal existence that we are in usually
0: in more of a narcissistic bent as well how does this affect me how do i feel about this yeah
1: but uh, i don't think you could say that any parent that was grieving oh, no, no, the no, loss of the
0: child would be in that that role that's why but, before i said a word about this issue in a fundamental sense i went to john ten
1: yeah but uh, you know one of the, the things that we understand is this the more we understand that this life isn't all there is and uh, that God sees the bigger picture, the more we will find comfort in times of of uh, struggle. You know, I think about Second uh, Samuel chapter twelve, where King David's son was dying, and David fasted and wept uh, and uh, called out to the Lord, and then the child died. And uh, the people that were ministering to David said, "How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do some harm." When David saw his servants were whispering, David perceived the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose to the ground, uh, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And when he had requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you've done? you fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him but he shall not return to me. Boy, that last line is so powerful. David understood that there was an afterlife. He saw, knew that in God's presence, his fullness of joy, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He knew that he was going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he also knew that even this child, this newborn child passing away, didn't mean an end to the relationship. They would see each other again. And that is a really key thing to understand. You know, uh, I was in a conversation with a friend of mine who was uh, an avowed atheist, and and uh, you know he was saying something about oh you know uh, these you know awful things that happen to children and all this other stuff. What do you say to people? He goes, I never could never do uh, what what you do. What do you say to people in that circumstance? And I shared these things that we have a hope of everlasting life, that we will see these children again. And uh, then I turned to him and I said. Now, if you're in that situation, what would you say to someone who had just lost a child as an atheist? Tough luck? Uh, Survival of the fittest? No. You see, when we understand that God sees the bigger picture, we have hope that we can share with people, Nina. And uh, it's not uh, something that's going to take all their pain and heartache away any more than Jesus uh, wasn't wrong to weep at the funeral for Lazarus. But on the other side of the coin, we do have hope. And uh, we do know that one day, healing, the way God defines healing, is going to be available to all of us. We are told there's going to be no more sorrow or pain or mourning uh, for the first things have been have passed away. Revelation chapter 21, beautiful statement Jesus makes, I make all things new. Um, when we see the Lord face to face, all of uh, the after effect of the fall of man, all of the uh, things we run into living in this fallen world, it's going to be over and done with. Boy, what a day that's going to be.
0: I'm worth looking forward to. The concern, though, is and This is an issue we clarify often at the start of the broadcast. The way God takes people home is the issue. What about when people die before they fulfill their purpose? Oh, boy. So the essential foundation of the question is, what if God made a mistake and violated his fundamental nature as the judge of all the earth doing what is right?
1: Yeah, and I can understand why why people would uh, cast about in moments like that and say things uh, in an emotional expression. Sometimes you just got to let people emote, uh, and then when things calm down, uh, you can talk about these kind of issues. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of people say, well, if God is love, how can this be fair? Uh, well, you know, all we're confessing at this point is that we don't see the end from the beginning. Uh, and in Revelation chapter 15, Uh, we see that in heaven there's going to be a song that is sung, and I I think I understand why they're going to be singing this song in heaven, where it says, Just and marvelous are your ways, true and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. Uh, You know, in heaven we're going to see that God got it exactly right, uh, even if it seemed a little strange to us at the time. And again giving time to grieve
0: and emote and all these other things. Grieve comes in waves. We all know that. But uh, if anything doctrinally starts to come out during those processes, it's our job to make sure the stamps put on that as soon as possible. Yeah, uh, we'll finish. Well, we'll see. Uh, Yari has a question. I don't know if we'll uh, finish with this, but the concern is regarding the hierarchy of heaven, regarding our relationships with animals. Um, it says in Isaiah that the lion will lie down with the lambs. Does that mean animals? Actually, live? it doesn't. Yeah. But uh, we'll, 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 we'll play with this. Yeah. The wolf will, anyway. Yeah. Uh, animals in the new heaven, the new earth, and the millennial kingdom, will humans not have dominion over them? How do we handle this passage? Well, the first question I'd answer the question with is does anything in the passage talk about animals' interactions with us or just them among each other? And the answer is both. Now, in the text, and we can read this in Isaiah chapter 11, it says in verse 6, the wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and notice no mess as a result of the lying down, the calf and the young lion and the fatling a little baby cow, together. And a little child shall lead them. That sounds like dominion going back to Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? Continuing on, it says, The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child... So even the most, uh, I guess, bare-bones expression of human beings... A rug crawler. Yeah. yeah. ...shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They still do, but it's not safe for them. It says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So what we're being told here is that, A children will be able to exercise dominion over animals, and B, even the most unaware human beings. And we would attribute this to the millennium, and we'll clarify why maybe in future broadcasts, but noting that it isn't dismissing any sort of hierarchy between creation and what the creator originally put in place. And nor do we charge God, again foolishly, with the idea that Oh, well, in the Garden of Eden, God kind of made a mistake with that because, you know, putting the animals over man's dominion, then that would affect them. In the new creation, God's going to kind of phase that out. No, the only thing being phased out is the curse. What's going to be replaced is what God called in Genesis chapter 1 very good, and that is, of course, what we read, where God told man, exercise dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle, and all uh, everything on the earth, even the creeps. For in the image of God, man was created. That doesn't change. And that was the sole condition by which we exercised dominion then and why we will
1: exercise dominion in the future. And that answers another question we got on our Facebook page from Monica. What will we be doing in the thousand-year reign of Christ? Exercising dominion over his creation. Uh, Even talks about us governing cities and so forth as a result of faithfulness. So reflecting
0: the image of God. God bless you.